0: Kincaid and Breckenridge, Stock 770. Thanks for listening to the show today. If you missed it, a couple of really interesting conversations. We talked about the building opposition to Bill 6, this uh, piece of legislation that's going to dramatically impact family farms in Alberta. We heard from one of the organizers of some of the anti-Bill 6 rallies that have been happening in Alberta. Yeah, then we heard from a guy who's not
1: a fan of Rachel Notley. Make sure you stick around for that weird phone call. And then at the end of the show today, we talked to Scott Stinson, our friend, sports writer at the National Post, about uh, the, the season that was in the CFL. <laughs> Hey, welcome back. I'm I'm Roger. That's Rob. I'm going to talk about uh, Bill 6 a little bit more here. Now, this is very contentious, obviously. It's uh, spawned two days of protest. Uh, The second one is today up at the ledge. Busloads of farmers from all about Alberta will be heading uh, to the legislature building to let this NDP government know just what they think about proposed legislation. The question is, has the government been forthcoming and informing uh, Alberta farmers about what Bill 6 Entails. When we spoke to uh, Stuart Somerville on Friday about Bill Six, one of the recurring themes in the conversation was that, you know, we don't know what the employee stand or the uh, employment standards are going to be. We we don't know this. We don't know that. There's still so much that's in the dark about Bill Six. So. No wonder it's so contentious.
0: Well, you know, one thing that a lot of people are pointing to and just, you know, to to further sow the confusion where over the past few days, you've had the labor minister saying that, look, this this applies to, to paid workers. But when you read on the government's own website, and there's a section here under overview of proposed changes, who would the changes affect? Question nine, does the legislation include unpaid workers, such as neighbors who help during busy times? It says, under the proposed legislation, the act and regulations would apply when an employer engages the services of a worker, regardless of whether or not the worker is paid. For example, neighbors who volunteer their help, and regardless of the worker's age. So it's stuff like that that's confusing the heck out of farmers. So if I have a neighbor helping out, if I have my kid helping out, does it apply? On the one hand, the government's saying, yes, absolutely it does. On the other hand, they're saying, no, no, it only implies to, to paid workers on your farm. So there, there's a perfect example of the miscommunication here. And uh, why farmers are, are concerned and nervous, not knowing what this is going to mean for them.
1: Now, let's bring our guest in. Shannon Trafiak is the uh, spokesperson for Albertans against NDP Bill 6. Shannon, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having us. We appreciate the time for sure. So. Well,
1: absolutely. I mean, this uh, this is a topic that needs a lot more clarity and uh, clarification, I guess, and we're not necessarily getting it from the government at this time. Hopefully, that will come in the days to come. Um, yeah. what, what, what do you need to know? What do, what's your take on Bill 6 as it stands?
2: Well, I mean, I think it's kind of a, it's definitely a loaded bill. There's so many different issues that are wrapped into one, um, and definitely, I think, what is getting a lot of attention is the issues with farm safety, um, and I think part of that—it is—it's important, but it's also inf- unfortunate because it does take away from the fact that really on Bill Six, the government has lumped in four different employment codes, basically, and so it kind of gets lost in the fact that you know under the guise of farm safety. You know, they've also got labor relations, which is, of course, you know, your unions and everything like that coming into the farm place. You've got employment standards, which very clearly, you know, and you follow the link right on their website, which very clearly outlines that youth employment opportunities and what, you know, youth are allowed to do, it's very limited to what they're able to do. And then you go further down the list and they've got the OH&S, you know, listed, which, I mean... I'm a mother, I'm a wife, and I live on my farm. Nobody wants a safe farm place more than I do. I mean, I want my children to be safe. I want my husband home at the end of the day. And I think that that's getting lost a little bit in the message because I think that's the most emotional one because people are, you know, they're insulted when somebody says, you know, oh, you farmers don't want safety. Like, well, no, of course we want safety, you know. But when the legislation is lumped into four separate work codes that effectively legislate our children off of our, off of the farm. I mean, if I can't have my children here, where am I going to be, you know, am, am I supposed to make the choice between having my children with me, you know, on the farm um, or leaving and leaving it for, you know, right, I, yeah. it's hard to, it's hard to articulate, right? Because there's just, there's so many, there's four different codes and all of them, each of them come with them, their own set of issues right? And they're trying to roll them all into one. So um, yeah, I mean, it's hard. I think you almost need to break it down into the the four different codes and talk about each one a little bit in order to get a real picture as to What is it that has, you know, farmers the most concerned financially, emotionally, you know, as as an attack on their way of life, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and just and some uncertainty. Like, there is so much uncertainty, and some of the information that's been presented at the various meetings that the NDP representatives have had um, as they're, you know, at these different locations, I mean, it's... And I haven't been to one yet. I'm going to. We're going to the Vegerville one, and I mean, it's not until, it's not until next week. So, you know, I can't necessarily say what's been said to farmers in those meetings because I wasn't there. But you know, some of what I've heard, it, you know, it's quite upsetting. You know, to the ends of well, how do you define where your your home ends and your workplace begins right. when you live on your farm, right? Well, sh- and sh- sh- you know, <laughs> go ahead. Sorry. Well, I, I mean, I, I hear
1: what you're saying, and it's it's it's. Uh it's a difficult topic for sure, and you talk about how it's all being lumped into one. There's these four components of the bill. But one thing that's abundantly clear is that farming is a statistically dangerous occupation. It's the third most dangerous, most hazardous job in Canada. And as far as uh, fatality statistics go in Alberta, it, it leads the league. So, mm-hmm. the, I mean, based on that evidence, do you agree that there's a need for legislation to be um, uh, brought into power to try to protect Farmers against uh, and farm workers against fatalities.
2: You know, there's been lots of there have there have been lots of different um, how do I there's been lots of different recommendations made and there has been consultations. I mean, in the last five years, there's been a lot of work done with farm safety. Uh, there's been the you know the Farm Safety Association of Canada. Um, I've got a couple of the different places here, and I mean those were in reaction to to those statistics right and I mean for sure do we need a safe workplace absolutely and you know the NDP government are basically saying that this legislation brings us in line with all of the other provinces but if you go and look at the other provinces workplace you know legislation for BC for example they have a set of exemptions so yes absolutely if I'm hiring an employee or I have my neighbor here working I want them to be safe nobody wants to be liable for somebody else's injury. Not, I mean, not just in liable, like you would feel terrible. You'd, you'd have to live with that for the rest of your life. They came over to help you and something happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody, nobody wants that, right? But I mean, there's a big, I'm losing my track, I'm sorry. I get a little bit emotional. That's so okay. any of, any of the other provinces have exemptions. So if you were the employer or a family member of the employer, you're exempt because they recognize that you are living in your workplace. If I'm going to go hire somebody tomorrow, do they deserve to be safe? Absolutely. Do I want my children to be safe? Absolutely. But any of the recommendations that have been made by the various organizations say that the best way to create a safe farm workforce is education. Education for children. You know, teach them how to be safe on the farm. Teach them how to be safe. You know, recognize that you know, there are risks here, it is a dangerous job, and if this is the job that you choose to do, and I mean, farmers don't become farmers because there's no other job, because it is a thankless job. I mean, it's the long hours, it's all hours, there are days when it's around the clock, you're up in the middle of the night checking cattle, you're up, but you're doing it because you love it. You're not doing it because you're looking for the paycheck at the end of the day, right? And that's a choice that you've made for that, you know, that you've decided this is the lifestyle you want for your children. You know, you want to see that your children are engaged. You want to see that your children are, you know, active members. Not every farm child comes back to the farm to work either. But then you can be proud that you're sending children out into the community who are hardworking, they're dedicated, they're active members of community. And, I mean, that's, if you want to compare some of what NDP wants, they want active members of community. I mean, is everything that farm life stands for? Actually, does it conflict with, you know, what they say is what's good for Albertans? Not necessarily. I don't think so. But I don't know that necessarily it needs to be regulated. I think it. I mean, there needs to be some regulation, and there needs to be, but it also needs to come with education. And in other provinces, they also set a limit. There's a difference between if I, me and my family would like to have 10 cows versus an employer who has 20 employees. And they make those differentiations Mm -hmm. or even if you have five employees and every other province manitoba saskatchewan they all make those distinctions so it's not necessarily the upset doesn't come from the fact that the ndp wants to put occupational health and safety in place but it comes from the fact that they want to do it with a blanket application that applies to everything and i mean there were some recommendations made in response to some farm injuries and it was in 2012 And the Minister of Justice, the Attorney Attorney General of Alberta, he actually suggested that, of course, paid employees on farms, they should be covered by OH&S Act, but there should also be the same exemption in place for family members and non-paid workers that that apply to any other industry. So, I mean, when the government's saying that we've made these consultations, you know, they have, and we've dug around a bit, and we've looked up to see what are these recommendations that have been made under these consultations, and we don't feel like they're actually following what was recommended. So it's fine to consult. But if you're not following the recommendations, I mean, it, does it really apply?
0: Right. So what, what's the chief concern about the impact here? Are we talking about the, the farm way of life and, and having the community and having neighbors help out and being able to teach your kids you know, the farming way of life? Or is it more on the financial side that this is going to have a, an economic impact on, on farms, either they won't be able to, to do what they've done in the past or additional costs that might be in, imposed on
2: farms? Well, I think there's definitely, like I said, there's four different codes and each of them has an impact in a different area, right? Mm-hmm. And the emotional aspect is the way of life, right? When you look at the financial impact, you know, to apply a blanket to say every farm in Alberta has to have an oh policy in place as well as, you know, the binders and the paperwork and everything else that goes along with that. And the skills training that goes along with that—I mean, that—that that becomes very hard to meet for a small farm. For a larger farm, it's possible because on a larger farm, you might have someone, and you know, today he goes out and he's a welder, and he's a welder for the year. On my small farm, where it's my husband, myself, and my my in-laws, you know what? One day my husband's a welder. The next day he's a carpenter. The day after that he's a midwife, and he's out with the cattle calving calves. The day after that. You know what? He's a trucker, and it, it's so different every day that if you needed to follow the standard OH&S guidelines and say, well, to, you need to have a certification to do to run your Bobcat, you need to have a certification to, you know, all these different things. When you're doing that on your own private property in in your own workspace, you know that just becomes unrealistic to maintain the skills training. Um, the cost of maintaining a program like that is. Is huge. And when you look at the economics, I mean, unfortunately, farming, farming and agriculture, like I said, it, it's a choice, it's a lifestyle, because we are one of the only industries where we buy everything at retail and we sell everything at wholesale. So, because of that dynamic, we do have very thin margins. We've got, I mean, there's a lot of perception that farms get big tax write offs and such, but I mean, I can, I'd be happy to show anybody my farm books and it's the standard business model of income minus expenses, right? And I mean, the expenses and the inputs that are required to carry on a farm business, I mean, they are larger than a lot of other industries, not other big industries, but, you know, here you've got families running with, within these economics and these margins that, you know, there isn't a lot of room. There isn't, at the end of the year, there is not an extra $20,000 left to give a payment, you know, to... I mean, that's the estimated cost for the average farm farm between the OH and S. The method that they're going to apply the WCB, it's not, and I mean, again, it's not just that we're going to have WCB, but it's how they want to apply it. Every other industry, the WCB, it's in place for employees. And when I go and sign on for, my husband also works off farm, So, I mean, if I go and sign up for WCB for him for the year, for his other company, which we do carry it, I actually, there's a check mark. Does the owner and director wish to carry coverage? Yes or no? And a lot of people actually decline that coverage because what WCB covers you for is less than what you would get under your own liability insurances and your other insurances that you carry. And so, I mean, the long-term financial impact, so now we've kind of slipped over into the WCB area is that under the new legislation, farmers and often their employees will actually be less protected because you cannot access any of your secondary insurance or any of your liability insurance until your WCB is exhausted. And, I mean, we all know with the state of how things are with WCB, that that's not necessarily the most effective means to sustain yourself is relying on WCB if you've been injured.
1: Shannon, do you feel that this is a, a, an issue that's been torqued politically by uh, by various parties uh, and, and a lot of people see this as sort of a, the urban-rural divide in Alberta, that it's a big city party imposing legislation on a, a group that uh, maybe it doesn't care about?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I definitely think that there there is some imposition. I, I don't necessarily think that it's, you know, city versus rural. I, I mean, I... We do have some people, even within our group, who have, have some contacts and, and various networks, you know, throughout Calgary, throughout Edmonton. And I mean, they're seeing it the same way. They're seeing that, you know, this is, this is the, the government basically imposing their will, you know, under the guise of basically safety. They're saying, well, this is all about safety. And this is all about what you guys want. We've had all these consultations and uh this is what farmers want and this is what workers want but yet i mean there's a i mean and we are a grassroots group there is no doubt we're not professional lobbyists we're nothing we're nothing of that sort um but there are you know there's other people working on on different things but you know there's a fellow not far from here and you know he started a it's like a google document form thing like a questionnaire yeah and he's yet to find a single agricultural worker who says yeah this is what i want you know he says fine you know find me a farmer or find me a farm employee that this is what we want if you know if rachel notley is able to stand up in the house and say this is what farmers have wanted and this is what this is what workers have wanted for 98 years well find me one of those farmers mm-hmm. you know and and so far nobody's come up with one
1: shannon what uh, what kind of farm are you operating
2: well, we have we've got a cattle and grain operation. We've got uh, purebred Hereford and Angus cattle, as well as we've got we grow our own grain to feed them, and we've got a few other crops that we have in crop rotation. So hey, thanks
1: for making all that food for us. We really appreciate it.
2: Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks Very for joining sweet. us. We have Shannon, to have you over it. for steak one day.
1: Oh, I would <laughs> take up that invitation.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. That's great, Shannon. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate that.
2: Okay, thank All right. you All so the much.
0: Best. All right, there you go. Shannon Trefiak speaks for the group Albertans Against NDP Bill 6. Uh, they organized a rally on Friday. There's another one set for today. Uh, so those are just the protests. Now you've got a whole bunch of meetings that have been taking place. You've got the government that's uh, tried to organize some some meetings to try to inform people about what's going on. You've got uh, the Wild Rose have been organizing their own meetings to sort of give farmers a, a voice, a chance to, to voice their concerns. And uh, the, these have been hugely attended. I mean, it speaks to the level of engagement on this issue. Maybe we don't see as much in, in the urban areas, but uh, in the rural areas, this is what everyone's talking about. Oh, sure. Um,
1: interesting uh, things to take away from the conversation with Shannon Chafiak just now. One, that uh, this seems like a mini-omnibus bill, right? Four things sort of rolled into one, whereas uh, perhaps uh, the, the the four things could be dealt with individually. If we do have to have some sort of WCB compliance or OH&S compliance, then, then maybe these things don't need to be stitched together in one bill bill six uh but shannon also made an interesting point says that you know farmers she's talked to and the survey that went out there's nobody saying hey in, in 98 years this is the solution that we've been waiting for so mm-hmm. if rachel notley can stand up in the legislature and say i've spoken to farmers this is what they're asking for it'd be good if those farmers would step forward and identify themselves
0: yeah, you know, you get the sense that farmers want to be part of the solution here. They they just want a solution that makes sense, and they want a government that's uh, working with them and not just imposing something on them. So I think, you know, there, there's an adversarial tone to all of this that, that a lot of farmers resent, as though uh, they're being punished by the, the government instead of the, the perception that the government's willing to work with them. So uh, that's why I think the government needs to slow down on this. They seem to be rushing ahead on this to try to get this passed as quickly as possible. I think that just further further... Creates that perception that, that the NDP is out to get farmers, and you know that that's just ratcheting up the tension here. We just had this this tragedy uh, on a farm recently; yeah. these two girls died. But here's, I the think they, they were they were playing on the equipment, right? It's not as though they they were working on the farm, mm-hmm. as I understand it. So I think you, you still do have these situations. I mean, you can put in uh, labor laws, impose them on farms, but uh, I mean, if you have kids who live on farms and think, hey, go fun to play on that piece of machinery. You got to address that another way. That's that's not going to stop those kinds of accidents from happening.
1: Yeah, I kind of wonder if there's some people who are trying to draw a correlation between this and like uh, sort of like gun laws. Do you know what I mean? Like gun laws are in place to protect people from certain accidents and whatnot. But I, I don't think there's a farmer working in Alberta who doesn't think that a gigantic machine is not dangerous. Like that, you know, when you look at the fact that according to uh, abfarmsafety.com, forty percent of uh of accidents are from machine runovers like these guys like what law are you going to put in place that says so you're not allowed to stand in front of the machine you're not allowed to have accidents happen to you right like the laws that prevent um certain gun crimes are they're how you handle your gun right where you can store your gun and stuff like that they're not going to bring in laws that are going to change the way you're allowed to use farm machinery or the law that 6% of accidents are animal related. So now we're going to legislate against having, you know, a cow turn really quickly and hit you. i like, I just, I wonder how much these laws can really do other than to just marginalize farmers and, and affect them negatively.
0: Let's go to the phone sometime for your reaction to this, Peter. Thanks for calling in. Yeah, this
3: dishwasher we have in Ellington. Does she know where dishwasher. breakfast comes from? Lunch
2: comes from.
3: Wait
1: a second. Wait a second, Peter. From. Hang on a second. I'm gonna take a stand here. Did you just refer to Rachel Notley as a dishwasher?
2: Yes, yeah, she doesn't know what she's talking about.
1: And did you is that uh in your opinion, is that sexist or not sexist? I don't care. Water this. Okay. Well, I, I do. We do have standards <laughs> on this program, Peter. And, and I'd like to think that by your age, sir, you wouldn't uh, be calling women dishwashers, particularly ones that have gained the confidence of the province that they lead.
0: It's so uh, <laughs> ironic. Wow. Just people to right away. There people actually do wash dishes for a living. So someone who's calling the program... To say that uh, one occupation is being denigrated by the government, the government doesn't appreciate what these people do, is going to call in and, and <laughs> denigrate another group of people to make his point. you got to take farmers uh, seriously. They, they do an important service. How dare you not appreciate what they do? Unlike those dishwashers, I hate them, they're useless. Okay. I mean well. Yeah. Wow. okay. We could do that. That's that's a classy way to address it. Yeah, the Peter, issue. Peter could be a half
1: hour of radio all to himself, I'm afraid. <laughs> I, I I don't know, Peter, if if your point was that a woman can't possibly make a good decision, then I might put you up as evidence that that maybe men couldn't either. All right. Uh we are going to punt the distracted driving uh Tim Hortons story till tomorrow's broadcast. We got a little Bill 60 after 10 o'clock, so uh, we're going to move that to other hot topic, hot stove topic, till tomorrow's program, and we're happy to do so.
0: We're going to uh, end the program with some conversation about the CFL. The Grey Cup is yesterday. The Edmonton Eskimos defeated the Ottawa Red Blacks 26 20. Uh, they're going to be having a big rally tomorrow in Edmonton uh, over the noon hour for the uh, Edmonton Eskimos. What's interesting is the mayor of Edmonton saying that after that rally, he'd like to have some conversation about the team name. would like to maybe meet with some Inuit leaders to discuss whether it's time to revisit the name Eskimos. The team's been named that, obviously, for a very, very long time. But there seems to be more of a push now. And and I think Edmonton being in the Grey Cup seemed to be part of why that that all of a sudden became an issue. So anyway, that, that's that's one issue that still lingers after this season. But I think there, there's a lot the CFL needs to to deal with.
1: I, if I were the Eskimos at this point, I just change the name. I just and I would just say screw you guys. By the way, it was really nice. We won the Grey Cup. That was great for the city, good for morale in this province. But yeah, okay, I get it. You want to take your shots? That's fine. Been called the Eskimos for a long time. This whole Blackhawks, Braves, Indians, Seminoles, Redskins thing's been brewing forever, but whatever, to hop on. <laughs> that's that's the
0: of the mind I would be right now. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe it'll come to that. But, I mean, I, I, look, there, there's no logo that goes with the name. I, I think when you mention these other teams, like the Cleveland Indians, I think it's the logo that, that seems so offensive. Yeah, you know, people the big didn't smiling. like Wahoo. Big Chief right. Wahoo, yeah. And... I think Redskins is just at a whole other level from Eskimos, but maybe
1: that's just me. Hey, let's bring Scott Stinson into the into the program. He's been on with us before, uh, writes for the National Post. Hey, Scott, welcome back to the program. Hello, fellows. Uh, you want to go ahead and weigh in on the Eskimos thing, or do you want to leave that one where it is?
3: <laughs> no, I. You know, that's one of those things where they've just. This has been what they have called obviously, and I was kind of under the impression that that no one had any major concerns with it because, as Rob says, there's no logo. Like, it doesn't seem... It's not really an offensive term to to my understanding of the term, but it gets into that area where if there are groups that say, well, I find it offensive and, you know, I am of that, uh, that particular demographic, then I think maybe you do have to have that discussion and go, well, let's hear what your concerns are and then sort of go from there. I mean, I would be of the you know, all these names are dicey for one reason or another. And, uh, you know, we'll probably eventually get to the point where none of that kind of stuff would eventually be allowed. But it just, this one strikes me as weird because it just seemed to come out of nowhere. And I know the Ottawa Citizen had an editorial on it. And and I thought at the time when I read that, that I had recalled reading something in the Adamant's Journal where they had done a fair bit of poking around and couldn't find anybody that had a particular problem with the name. But... I guess it shouldn't be surprised that somebody has somebody has come out to say that, that yes,
1: indeed, they do have a problem. Yeah, I, th- I think the Rough Riders, by the way, should change their name because uh, not all riders are rough. Sorry, some are, back up. they are uh, gentle riders out there, and I think they get a bad name. A good, uh, point. A good point. Thank you, thank you, Scott.
0: <laughs> so, what, what did you make though? I mean, with that aside, uh, the Great Cup, Winnipeg is host. I know there was, there was some concern late in the week that the game hadn't sold out. What was your sense of how it all came together?
3: Yeah, it was, I think, is anytime you have these cold weather breakups, if you don't have a host city that's involved, or in the case of Winnipeg, like, they were terrible this year. They was known that they were not going to be involved for months, so that didn't help with ticket sales. And anytime you get these cold weather games, it's like, well, I could go to the stadium or I could just watch it on my big flat screen TV at home. And, and so I think you're always going to have that issue when you go to the outdoor stadiums and in cold um that it's going to be touch and go for selling it out and ultimately they did obviously i'm sure they had a marketing push that uh, helped out so in the end they're happy with it and it was a you know decent game i think it kind of sucked that the big plays ended up being pass interference calls. Yeah. Uh I don't think we'll be telling stories years from now about the amazing call that was overturned on a coach's challenge that led to a defensive pass interference that led to a touchdown. But uh, you know, it worked out all right, I guess.
1: Yeah, there's no NFL films of the blown call, right? Like, there's the uh, <laughs> yeah. immaculate reception and one up. Yeah,
3: they'll have a slow motion uh, of the review taking place and the guy with the headset on, and yeah, yeah it's pretty exciting.
1: And that's when Jones threw the flag. Big voiceover. Um, Yeah, I mean, let's talk about that cold weather thing, though, because Brad Wall came out and said what a lot of Canadians have been saying for a long time, which is if we start the season two months earlier, we'd have less NFL overlap and we would have uh, a gray cup that's played in in more fan-friendly conditions. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I don't –
3: I have no problem with that in terms of the – I think the – overlap with the NFL thing is it is what it is and the CFL is its own market and its own fan base and if there are people who are into the CFL and are going to watch the K-Cup, I think they're going to do it regardless of when they do it uh, when it's played. So I think there's there's real merit to moving that forward and to just making sure that you don't have a late November uh, game because it just really does limit your options in terms of of how you present the thing and what your, you know, outdoor activities are going to be in the week leading up to it and and all that stuff. I mean, there's a reason they like to do these things in the NFL in the warm wetters, this weather cities, and it's because you can do like a big week long festival that's outdoors. And and you're obviously limiting yourselves if you taking a chance to go to a place like Winnipeg or Regina and, and the what really is the onset
0: of the strong onset of winter. Yeah, and especially you know when the game basically is is in the evening too. I mean, like it was mm-hmm. I, from what I understand, it was a pretty decent day in Winnipeg yesterday. But by the time you get to six, seven o'clock at night, and the sun's been down for a couple of hours, uh, it it gets cold.
3: Yeah, I thought both coaches were uh, showing serious game toughness by having not parkas on. I mean, yeah. Jones in particular looked like by the end of the game you could tell he was pretty rosy-cheeked, and I was thinking he must be dying to put a coat on. But I just. He's, he's committed. He doesn't want to look like a wuss. So he uh, sat there in his, in his shirt and pants and chattered his teeth away while he was trying to make calls.
1: <laughs> yeah, he wasn't at like Tom Coughlin level for the for the New York Giants or anything, but he was pretty. Yeah. He was getting pretty yeah, rosy.
3: He was pretty beat. I think.
1: Well, you know, I kind of wonder. Like the the CFL to me just had one of its worst years in in recent memory, and and they even had the press conference where they were talking about some. What was the spike in penalty flags this year? There's something like twenty three and a half per game or something like that. And like, to, yeah, it, sorry, go ahead.
3: No, I just, yeah, it was definitely. I don't remember the number, but it was definitely way way up. And and with the addition of the challenges and the video reviews of penalties, there were times where it just seemed like. You know they couldn't help but run a play with it, some sort of flag being involved.
1: Yeah, and then the, the turning point of the game yesterday, as you mentioned before, is that pass interference non-call that was then overturned by the challenge. And I think I said earlier on, like, every Canadian watching, except, I guess, the officials, <laughs> knew that that was not only against the CFL rules, but there might have been, like, a criminal code violation in that <laughs> infraction as well. It was so plainly obvious to us. But it's like that's kind of, that summed it all up for me this year. Like, the the CFL was just this penalty-laden league. And ratings were down. And, you know, hang on. Let me see. I'm going to get you uh, to be an all-rounder on this answer, Scott. Because uh, in Toronto, the Argonauts didn't even get to play some of their home games at home this year.
3: They played five, count them, five games of the nine home games, actually, in their home stadium. Yeah, it was a total disaster. I mean, the Argos would, you know, frankly, that would be a whole segment unto its own. But um, the point about the penalties is absolutely valid. The television ratings were down, hurt somewhat by the Blue Jays and a a big playoff run there. But I I think one of the things, sort of the hidden things of the the CFL season was the Skytron Rough Riders were terrible. And it was kind of an eye-opening experience that if the Rough Riders aren't doing well, then that really sucks a lot of the life out of just TV ratings and sort of general interest in the CFL. And I mean, it's kind of crazy that you have a pro sports league that is reliant on the success of Saskatchewan yeah. to to sustain it. I mean, it just doesn't happen uh, in any other obvious, you know, every other market is like, well, we hope the Yankees are good and we hope that the New York Rangers are in the playoffs. But you see this weird thing where they live and die on the success of the Rough Riders, which is, you know, interesting in that you have a small market team that has such influence, but it shows you that, you know, what would normally be the big cities that would buoy the ratings, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, they're not, you know, really into it in as complete a way as some of the other Western cities are.
0: But there wasn't much to get excited about in those three cities either this year.
3: No, that's true. They, for various reasons, I mean, Toronto was a complete disaster, particularly off field. They actually did okay on field. I think the, the Alouettes had something like five quarterbacks that they used throughout the season. So they were just a bit of a train wreck from the start. And in each of those cities, they had their reasons for not really falling in love with the team, but it is kind of a, a larger, I mean, that's the thing that Jeffrey Reward the new commissioner has to figure out is how to make not just the team successful in Toronto, but in, in the bigger urban markets here, because, um, you know, you see, I always laugh when I was watching the CFL, the great cup last night, Safeway is one of the big advertisers. You know, it's on national broadcast, but the Safeway million-dollar something or other, I mean, there's no Safeways in Ontario
0: right. <laughs> or,
3: or, or or Quebec, and yet they've got, you know, national broadcast rights, uh, and you just wouldn't see that in the States. You know, you're not going to have a, a brand that isn't available in half the country by advertising time on the Super Bowl, it's, but uh, it's one of those weird quirks of, of the CFL.
1: Right. Um. I wonder if, okay, so Toronto's moving next year, right? They're, they're moving out of the Rogers Center Skydome thing, and then they're going to play at, at like a revamped BMO field. Is that the idea?
3: That is correct.
1: Okay. This is something that the Alouettes, this like breathed life into the Alouettes franchise when they couldn't play a playoff game in their stadium because U2 was playing a show there. <laughs> so they had to go and play at McGill. But it was like a brilliant move for them, right? Yeah, and that's, that's absolutely the
3: hope that in Toronto, that moving to BMO Field, which is a soccer stadium, will be the thing that suddenly makes them relevant again. Because it'll be a you know twenty five, twenty seven thousand seat stadium, and it's outdoors, and it's it's a great atmosphere for the soccer games that have been there. So they're not you know hoping that this is on its own going to be the thing that saves the franchise, but. They certainly think that without the new stadium, they had no chance of being successful. And so now they have new stadium, new owners, which is ironically Bell Media, which is the TV broadcaster, which is confusing on a number <laughs> of levels. But uh, yeah, they hope that now that you into into BMO Field that it, they'll be able to create an atmosphere that gets people interested in the team in a way they haven't been before, at least young people. I mean, that's the big thing in Toronto, the GTA, is that the only people that go to Argos games are are 40 and over, right. uh, and they just don't have that younger demographic interest, which is who you need to sort of go and buy tickets and beer and all that stuff.
1: But, but I think that's the story all across the league, right? I mean, you got the Lions and the Argonauts are the two biggest cities in the CFL, and they both play in buildings that they don't even attempt to sell every ticket in. Uh, and then you've got, like, Edmonton has got a way too big stadium, even for the Grey Cup champion team. We have empty uh-huh. seats at Stamps games. Uh-huh. I mean, uh-huh. Saskatchewan, they sell them. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I look at, like, the new stadiums and sort of the way that the CFL thinks they need to go, and I think that they're going in absolutely the wrong direction if they want to try and improve the fan experience and get people to come out to football games again.
3: Yeah, it's funny that you know, in Toronto for as long as I can remember now, the argument has been, well, the only way we can make the Argos make money is if they sell fewer tickets. <laughs> and and that's <laughs> essentially been the argument, is we need to go into a smaller building so we can sell fewer tickets, so then people will enjoy the atmosphere. And it's it does seem a little crazy. I see where they're going with it, only because the Rogers Centre with 20,000 people in it was like attending a funeral. Uh, but and if you get a, a big crowd and, you know, a stadium that only supports 25, then, you know, then maybe it'll be that much more, just a better atmosphere and get people into it. And, and that will be the big test. I, I don't know. I mean, I think even in Montreal, I, I was there for a playoff game last year and they couldn't even sell out the McGill, McGill stadium, uh, in a playoff. I think kind of the, the shine had come off it a little there. Um, so, you know, that's the other big question too is it might, Work for a bump in the short term, but but you really need to to grow long term support with a different different
1: demographic of fans right. to, uh, to be successful. The way you do that is your book Fallout Boy.
0: <laughs> well, that helps. <laughs> <laughs> what what about Bell Media here? I mean, uh, your colleague Cam Cole had a piece on just how dependent the CFL has been on this TSN money. But if if ratings are down and if, if Bell Media is uh, hurting a little bit in this atmosphere, um, do, do do they? lowball the, the, the CFL at some point. How does that change the dynamic?
3: Yeah, well, it would change it dramatically. Um, I think the current deal goes till 2021 or maybe 2019. It's, it's a long term anyway, oh, okay. but, but um, there's absolutely an issue where if at some point Bell says, you know, nobody else is going to bid for this contract, which they're not. See, it, The CBC is obviously not involved. They don't really have a sports department anymore. Uh Rodgers never would because they've got hockey and they've got uh, Blue Jays. So they don't have any need for the content. So we're the only people who's going to bid on at our TSN. So, you know, TSN is essentially bidding against themselves. So at some point they might want to say, you know, why are we giving them $40,000? Why don't right. we offer them 20 And And then, you know, the problem, of course, you know, is if they offer them 20 and then all of a sudden the whole – Economics of the league fall apart, and TSN now might have a contract for a league that isn't about to exist anymore. It's yeah. all very confusing. But yeah. you, know, you know, at some point, I could definitely see somebody at Bell saying, "This is stupid. We're basically paying a lot of money for a contract that, in normal circumstances, we would say, you know, we're, we're going to pay a lot less because we're the only bidder."
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, Scott, we're going to leave it at that, man. Thanks so much for the call today. Appreciate it.
3: Okay, see you guys.
1: All right, take care. That's Scott Stinson from the National Post. You know, I don't know that I wouldn't count c b c out just yet though I think that there's a connection somehow between the c f l and c b c and I can't quite put my finger on it, but I think the guy's <laughs> name is Jeffrey Oridge
0: yeah, there's <laughs> that yeah that that could be interesting i and I wonder if if the c b c would would um would move in if if Bell got some cold feet. Interesting, but yeah, I think as as uh, Scott says, you know, TSN still has it for a few more years, mm-hmm. and I think both the CFL and TSN are hoping that come 2019, uh, that the league's doing better than it is at the moment. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, no, by the way, it was also 20 years ago that the uh, Baltimore S- Stallions <laughs> won the Grey Cup. Remember that? I <laughs> Remember was... how weird that was? You think about it, the ups and downs of the CFL in the 90s, and I got to you know, at a pretty good place in recent years. And, yeah, this, this year was a little rocky for them, but things have been a lot worse.
1: I remember uh, last night we were watching the game, and I was trying to explain how difficult it would be if your kid, if that was your kid, right, watching that game with you first time, and then he went online and looked at the list of Grey Cup champions and was asking you, like, hey, Dad, like, what? Tell me about these great teams. And you were trying to tell him about all the different eras of the CFL? How come Baltimore won it one year, Dad? Oh, that was your... Did they beat Ottawa? No, there was no Ottawa team Did you name all the U.S. teams? The Shreveport Pirates. The Shreveport. There's Las Vegas Posse. There's Las Vegas Posse. The Sacramento Gold Miners. The Baltimore Stallions. Was that it? I think that was it. Four teams, right, Patrick? Patrick would know this. He's the champion of uh, of such things. Am I missing one? Oh, there was a team Which in Texas. There was San Antonio. Oh, there San was Antonio. something in Texas.
0: Yeah, San Antonio. Shreveport. We forgot that. Shreveport? We got Shreveport, San Antonio, Las Vegas, Baltimore, Sacramento. Yeah, that sounds right.
1: All right. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we'll uh, go through the glory days of the XFL and the championship <laughs> game that was called the big game uh-huh. at the end of the season. This has been Gingade <laughs> and Breckenridge. We'll see you tomorrow.